0: Hello everyone, I'm Stella. I'm Sophia. And I'm Vanessa. We host Generation Discourse.
1: Generation Discourse is a platform for young people to come up with, share, and discuss ideas within the realm of theory and the abstract. You'll find us talking about philosophy, current events, and social concerns.
0: You're listening to part two of our conversation on Eastern culture. Unlike the previous episode, this instalment centres more around politics.
1: If you want to hear more discussion on the broad topic of Eastern culture, we recommend listening to Eastern Culture Part 1, The Ethics of Entertainment.
0: These episodes can be listened to as standalone pieces or as an extension of the previous episode. I mean, where does this, like, culture of, like, such hard work come from, though? It's
2: because Asia was so poor in, like, the past, like, years. And, like, now that like, they're rich, got, like, we have to keep going like this. It's, like, hard working is just a big thing. And, like, that's, like... I think like overly hardworking is like, rude. Like it's, like, I don't know. Like with the like youth with you, like show you were talking about. Like they were like like literally ranking like, um, how long the girls are training for. Like some girls are training like, for, like three days, like two days, and like a half, like not sleeping. Like that's something which they like, like, you get like privileged, like privileges because of this. Like we support this unhealthy lifestyle. Yeah. I think this is quite, like, a, like, this conversation is quite a Western view on the Eastern, like, Like, we're saying that, oh, this is so toxic, and this is so unhealthy, and this is something we should not be supporting, well, if you look at it on, like, a more Eastern view, like, we'll probably go, like, oh, it's completely fine.
0: And and they probably see, like, Western people, like, whenever I go back to China, like, high school must be so easy, right? Like, you guys must be (laughs) (laughs)
3: I think we have to like look at it from the yeah like as kind of like just feeding onto what you guys were saying like maybe we're all viewing it from too much of a Western perspective as much as understanding like how the actual people in East Asia views of themselves. Like sometimes if you like look at interviews done in Western countries, maybe like it's not as informative as onto perspectives as much as interviews that would be done in like Eastern countries. East Asian countries, I guess.
0: What's a what's a criticism then of looking at this from a Western perspective?
3: Like maybe or maybe not a criticism, but maybe it's just a cultural difference. Like we just don't understand. Yeah, maybe it's just a cultural difference. Like we think it's just quite different in general, I guess, to I think it's just the way we view work ethic. It's quite different to East Asians in general. Of course, we still go through working hard, but I guess we kind of place limits. But even if, like, the people in East Asia, even if they don't place limits, like, who are we to kind of just say, oh, they're wrong?
0: And, I mean, is there, like, an objective, like, way, like, regardless of if it's, like, Western or Eastern, that we should be looking at these... Um, like, what, what is, like, the right way to work ethic?
3: Well, I mean, they're, they're probably just, they probably just, isn't it's just what people are suited to. But, like, yeah, I just don't think we can ex- exactly call others, just, just straight up call it wrong. Mm. I mean, like, maybe if, like, because I think at the end of the day, like for instance, performers, right? They themselves, like, they, I'm pretty sure they would more or less have a choice, like, when they sign their contract, like, maybe they don't. If they don't, it's just kind of messed up in all levels, right? But they should be able to be able to know what they're going into and just accept it.
0: I mean, okay, that that brings up like a new thing of like, do they actually have a choice, right? Yeah. Like, it's like it's like saying like Channing, like, if you want to be you, you have a choice, you know, of whether you you can, like, practice two hours of piano a day or, like, six hours of piano a day. Like, that, that's, like, technically a choice that you can make, right? But if you make the choice of only practicing two hours a day while, in like, fully being committed to a piano career, like, obviously, you are going to fail, like, compared to, like, insane people like Catherine Chan or Schwan, right? So, like, is sure. it really a choice when the environment itself is, like, this competitive and, like, this cutthroat?
4: i guess the thing is like in east asia it's likely that even if you entered another industry or another job that you would be like like we're horrified or well, like like western cultures are, or like western people are like horrified by the treatment but at the same time we seem to be just as horrified by like how hard primary school students work in china and like how much homework they have as so it's likely that even if they weren't in the k-pop industry they might be like working just as hard or like or like being mistreated or like being as stressed out and like overworked as they would being like in many other industries like I don't know if they were doctors or lawyers or something which is something they would be likely to be like pursue and um, otherwise because those are like careers that those cultures value um and so yeah it's a, it's a question of like is is the is the like outrage at the k-pop treatment just because people are so in like western cultures that that's like the thing they're most invested in and like know the most about in terms of uh, a product or an industry that comes from these east asian Asian countries when in reality it's just kind of the same as what happens in any other korea in those countries
3: Mm.
0: Although I think um, in Japan, like, that's a, yeah, like, I think globally we're getting, like, a better understanding that, like, in Japan, the general culture is, like, to really overwork yourself in all kinds of industries. Although, yeah, I agree, like, definitely because K-pop is such a big thing worldwide. Like, that's where we, as global audiences, put our focus on.
1: I think, Grace, that's a really good point. I think the thing that most Western audience members take issue with is... The idea that once these K-pop stars have gone through their training and they manage to make it big, they don't really have any other outlets. Like what I'm getting at is um, in order to train and in order to get so skilled at what they do at such a young age, they have to give away most of their formative years in which they would be generally educated for another profession. And so it means that if they were to leave just like with nothing, right, they wouldn't actually be qualified to be able to make it in the world with any other kind
4: of yeah I guess that's why I was thinking earlier about like how much profit they earn because I think if like like them being able to earn even like the tiniest slice of their profits that come directly from their performances and their success would enable them to have a lot more freedom in terms of breaking away from the group and potentially like going back into university or something like that and like being able to financially sustain themselves through at least like five years of university or something.
3: Yeah,
1: Mm. I think that's where it comes down to applying a Western moral framework onto an um, Eastern ideology, like we're all the sum of our experiences and when you have a cultural difference you're going to have a moral difference and that doesn't make either moral framework more valid than the other. And so we could easily apply this outrage to young athletes right who have been training all of their lives to make this one olympics and then they've lost their prime because that's how athletes work and then they're not really exactly trained for any other profession either but we don't really see as much anger about that
0: yeah that's true yeah 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 i feel like we are like well yeah it is it is a bit hypocritical of us especially like Now that I think about it, I feel like in Western society, a lot of our work ethics are moving towards like a more Asian or like Eastern kind of culture of work ethics, even though at the same time, we're still criticizing them about that. And I feel like, I feel like maybe like a part of it is just like, um, you know, just like globalization in general, like you are having a very large influx of um, Asian immigrants coming into Western societies that is changing the way that these expectations are being perceived.
1: Yeah, and I think in lots of ways, in order for a society to operate, it almost needs to have a different moral framework. Because we have, like, kind of, in Western societies, in places like the States, right, they have a lot of land for very few people, relatively, if you compare it to China or Bangladesh, you know? So, it means that we've kind of been brought up to be very individualistic because that's the only way that society is going to be able to feasibly operate with that sort of setup. But if we have a place like Korea and they've been, they've adapted to have a competitive society because that's the only way that they're able to actually survive, who are we to say that needs to change?
4: Yeah, I mean, it uh, reminds me of an interesting thing that I read like a few weeks back around like I guess those communities kind of choose to make that trade-off themselves in terms of the culture that they perpetuate. And so they make a trade-off of, like, being fine with the mistreatment of these people to be, to produce, like, success. And the thing that it was, that this reminded me of was, like, I was reading a, a, like, a magazine article on, like, urban planning and stuff. And so basically, like, East Asian countries also choose to prioritise their communities and like a sort of social well-being over individual freedoms and like um, particularly in terms of their privacy and so east asian citizens are far more likely to give up their privacy and like be fine with like having surveillance cameras on their streets in order to have like some sort of communal or like societal sense of um safety and that's something that a western community would almost never never ever be willing to trade off they would never trade off A sense of like community um well-being for their personal freedoms and like being safe from surveillance cameras outside their streets i think that this is actually a similar trade-off to the k-pop one um except that people are more outraged because like western culture sees it as like a human rights abuse almost but we also see like a violation of privacy as a human rights abuse in western cultures and yet that's something that those East Asian cultures are like completely, completely happy to trade off, and so in the end, if that's a community trade off that like Korea has made, and, and like a majority of those citizens buy into that trade off and have like uh, and like uh, accept it, then there's yeah, there's a there's a there's a question you ask of like whether it's whether that even needs to be changed or whether that's a trade-off that's actually made those citizens happier in, like, a communal sense.
0: Well, I think, like, it might not necessarily be, like, a just, like, a straightforward choice that people from these countries make, right? Like, I feel like it's, like, through generations of, like, whatever propaganda or revolutions their government has been through, that it just shifts, like, the Overton window into, like, into into making the civilians see that like, okay, like losing my privacy isn't necessarily like a bad thing. Like I think that's a result of like what the government has been like trying to perpetuate and like proper propagate like all of these years that creates this kind of um, perspective from these people, um, and I and that could that is t- definitely the same for like Western society too, right? Like this like generations of like democracy is like what we're aiming for like a perfect democracy has caused us to value like individualism and like our right to do anything like feel anything um like that's that's why these values are so like prominent so i don't i don't necessarily think that it's like just like a simple matter of like in in the day to day basis i like deeply analyze um like whether i want to make the trade off between like, privacy and, like, well-being or something like that, right? Like, I think it's just been ingrained to me based on the culture that I'm in, based on, like, the government that I am with.
1: And I think this is where we reach something of a problematic sticking point, right? Because who are we to say what's the right decision to make? You know? I mean, because anyone from an outside culture can say, oh, you've been indoctrinated and so you don't know what's good for you. Um, and... But when we're operating in, like, a framework where free will is king, right, and whatever someone chooses is right for them, how, who are we to say that K-pop stars choosing to continue to burn the candle at both ends, uh, so to say, is wrong for them, you
4: know? so yes, I think it's interesting because the thing about, like, the privacy trade-off is uh, I'm not, I don't know too much about how it happens in other countries, but for example, in Singapore, their government is always democratically elected. Like Singapore is a democratic government. And so like I don't think a government like in Singapore, I don't think a government could particularly easily force a ideology or like even try to manipulate people into believing in ideology. And yet Singaporeans are still perfectly happy to give up their privacy. Um there's something like they tell like government collects data on how often and what times of day people flush their toilets to conserve water usage and like and like figure out how to distribute their water best and therefore like save water usage and like preserve the environment and that's actually like a perfectly valid decision that Singaporeans have made that seems to be relatively free from government influence because of the democratic government and like the ability for people to pressure the government and stuff like that
1: i think singapore's a really interesting case because yeah it's like um, on the
4: boundary of like like western culture and east asian culture sort of
1: exactly exactly um so because i've lived there for most of my life um, and what i can say for certain is that singapore is like the bare minimum to count as a democracy And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because people don't really draw attention to it because they're living quite happily, because the Singaporean government takes care of its citizens and so they can do pretty much whatever they like behind the scenes. Um, And so, you kind of, it counts as a democracy because people do vote, except the thing is that the government controls what people think about each political party, and so every single year that you have a vote for the government, you'll have like a landslide victory for the PAP and it's always over 60% because no one knows how to vote any better. You know, like they've never been educated about the other political parties that are available. But the thing is that the PAP always treats them well. And so you don't really have democratic choices that swing the other way. And so you do have the PAP suggesting censorship laws that are wrapped up in a neat little bundle. Um, to look like um, defamation laws, right? They can take down anything off of Facebook and call it fake news, but the thing is that that is only determined by what they think is fake. Um, so that kind of brings you on to like, you know, should people be taking a critical look at what the government is doing if the government is treating them well enough that they don't need to?
0: Because in this case, like, no one ends up thinking critically about it. I think that's really interesting, right? Like, that's explored heavily in a lot of dystopian novels. Like, you have a seemingly utopian society where everyone is treated really well. They live great lives, great fulfilling lives. But, like, yeah, I think.
4: Yeah, I'm not sure about the education of the citizens, but one thing I do think is that every democracy needs a functional working opposition party. Like, I think it's important yeah like in terms of citizens being educated enough to vote for another party i think that comes through if you see your government or like if if your opposition if the main like opposition in parliament or like uh, any opposition party puts up a significant enough challenge or like alternative proposal to something the government is proposing and then the working government has to engage with that like uh, alternative proposal or idea then you get media coverage for that thing but the but yeah you need to you need to have a uh, government and like laws that enable an opposition to actually uh exist i guess and not just be like stamped out or brushed to the sidelines by your government
1: See, I think that's a really good point, And I would completely agree with you. Um, I'm just gonna play the devil's advocate here. And like, because I've had this discussion quite a few times with my family, and we've kind of come to the conclusion that it's very likely that Singapore's only able to operate so efficiently because there isn't a very good opposition, because there's this overwhelming sense within the community that we are one singular team. We are like a working cell. And if there were to be another party to oppose uh, the suggested changes of the PAP, people would start to feel quite uncomfortable with that. And it would feel less stable. And I feel like that sense of stability is what
4: allows Singapore to function as it does. Yeah, it's It's, really interesting. I think that's true. And like, like, yeah, I agree that Singapore functions on very, very uh, like ingrained sense of stability that allows the community to feel completely safe. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there comes a point, though, where the decisions that Singapore has to make, particularly around now, where there are, like... I don't know, I just think that there are, like, interesting decisions that cities need to... Like, Singapore's basically one giant city, like, that cities in particular need to think about in terms of post-COVID future and, like, in uh, like climate change crises, there comes a point where the decisions that the ruling government make it like i think is likely to become controversial like it's difficult to make decisions around like climate change that aren't controversial in some way and have like some people who oppose and some people who agree and in that situation i think it becomes dangerous that even if you like have stability where you don't have a working opposition to challenge your ruling party or because like i think it still leads to slight instability if you have if you only have one government like one major political party and then dissent within the general public that never gets expressed um through like a working opposition to that party
0: Right. Well, I feel like, um, with these kinds of stents, right, like, I I feel like this similarly exists in China, right, where you do have, like, a lot of people, like, a significant portion of the population who, like, definitely oppose the, um, Communist Party, right, but, like, because they don't really have, like, a big avenue to, like, like, an opposition to voice that kind of dissent through. Like, it's never really effective enough for whatever stability is to be, like, kind of, like, completely destroyed, you know?
1: And I think what's really interesting about Singapore's case is the fact that if there's any dissent, it's generally not heard, because the people who are benefited by the government are the richer people, and the richer people are able to make their voices heard more. And so, and you also have like the in, kind of indoctrination thing that we're talking about where people are brought up to love the government and so they don't really need to think critically about it in any other way. So I would say that I've, like, I've never seen anyone who actively dislikes the Singaporean government in all my time living there.
2: So if I'm not mistaken, is Singapore like a democratic like, shell but a communism framework?
1: No, I, I would say it's, it's, dem- it's definitely a de- democracy. Um, and it operates like one, but the democracy kind of falters when it becomes, when it comes to voting season, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. because people don't really know who else to choose. So it's not really a dictatorship. That would be very extreme. It just, um, it just means that one party gets elected over and over again. But the thing is that it's never become anything not a democracy because the party never makes any decisions that, are really extreme, it just keeps things running.
4: Mm. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see what happens in Singapore if one day the government does try to pass something like super controversial or like decently challenging or like different.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, that's the thing is because the democratic parties of Singapore are actually relatively new, it only really gained its independence. Or um, like a little over half a century ago, so yeah yeah that hasn't actually been enough time for a decent dissenting party to like ferment in its anger, you know
0: well, I mean, Stella, what do you think will happen then if um like what grace is, something they are forced to make like a really challenging decision and You know, how would, how would the nation, how do you think the nation would look towards that?
1: I genuinely think that people would just say it's for the greater good, you know, Um, because people trust the government so much in Singapore that if the decision made by the government directly disadvantages them, they would be fine with it because they would be so completely hyper aware of the fact that it's going to be advantaging others. And so they've created a really kind of very, very supportive environment in which people genuinely very, like, really care for their fellow citizen. And there's this kind of ideology that the government allows you to support your fellow citizen. And so if the Singaporean government ends up making a really controversial decision, I genuinely don't think that there's going to be that much backlash because they already have made quite a few of them.
0: I'm interested, like, other than just taking away, like, fake news... Like, how else does hmm. the Korean government, like, gain so much report within its nation?
1: Well, so you kind of, you have defamation lawsuits, right? I'm not sure if that's what they're called.
0: Right.
1: Um, but essentially what happens is if you are of someone of, like, high ranking of power, or if you have, like, a, a, uh, a platform, let's say, where people listen to you, if you say something about a member of the government... Or a political party that is in any way sort of derogatory, or it implies that you don't support them, then the government can actually take you to court and sue you over it. But the thing is that the judges are also from the government, and so they're never going to rule in your favour. And so what happens is that if they label you as someone who's an activist, right, um, and who has over and over again proven that they are disapproving of the government, they can take you to court and sue you until you are too bankrupt to actually continue living in Singapore and pay taxes. And so you'll have people getting kind of pseudo-deported and like activists having their Facebook pages taken down and then they've moved away, you know, because it's just too much to continue like fighting against this huge entity, you know?
4: Yeah, I mean, the answer to Vanessa's question around like how they gain so much support is basically just like the Singaporeans have seen the decisions that the government make hugely benefit their communities. Um, Singapore is one of the like, uh, like their public transport is one of the most efficient in the world. Um, The urban planning and their like architectural design is is some of the nicest or like aesthetically most pleasing and like most functional and efficient in the world. And it's those kind of decisions that they've seen made improve their direct quality of life that actually just creates buy-in and has made. Like, Singaporean citizens have so much buy-in into the government. Yeah, I I guess it is, like, the point at which you have so much buy-in from your citizens that they're so likely to just approve of all the decisions you make because they're so trusting in the belief that it will benefit the community in some way is perfect, perfect avenue for corruption and like uh uh, like like dystopian style government rulership where if you somehow let in like a mole let's call them into your government then there's so much like power that and like potential for that government to misuse um because of the trust and the buy-in they have from their communities and their citizens which yeah I guess there's something that, like, does the Singaporean population in general like ever particularly keep this thought at like the forefront of their minds when they're like considering new government policy? I think the answer is probably no, which is what makes it dangerous i think
0: really? I mean like, yeah, I know the government done anything like corrupt corrupt though like other than other than like' I don't think even, so. you know the the stuff about how they're bad but like Do they actually do really hardcore things to their citizens for their own selfish need?
4: No, I will. No, they don't. Yeah,
0: I.
1: If they have, it's not being reported on. That's the thing. Is that um, something else that I found kind of dodged, but never really thought that much about when I was living in Singapore is the fact that the Straits Times and the kind of main Singaporean news reporting outlets don't really seem to report that much on very hard-hitting issues um and so for example um i was in the cdd which is like the center of singapore's operations it's an extremely important area of land and there was a blackout for like an hour it was really really bad um and so the, this entire grid shut down and so this would be like kind of extremely relevant stuff to be reporting on because it's basically the center of singapore's trading area just not having power for an hour that would be devastating and then no one reported on it it didn't come out in the news it wasn't on social media it just like was completely swept under the rug and so it would be very difficult to actually tell if singapore was making controversial decisions because
0: things like this just get it's not like the singaporean government like necessarily need criticism to be like, you know, like I got up my game on my power, you know? So like, I, I can, you know, it's it's obviously like not particularly good, like principally for them to avoid that criticism. But like, if we think of it like purely consequentially, do they really need it? Like if at the end of the day, it might damage their reputation and prevent them like a, like a really good, efficient government to, go to like be reelected again. So do they really need an opposition? Or like uh, just like taking taking the example of like um criticizing the power outage in the CBD, right? Like do they really in that in that instance, yeah, do they really need any kind of criticism or like for just kind of yeah, general like policies governing just like the basic well-being of society, like do they really need significant pushback if they already like they've already been really efficient. They've doing they've been doing this for a long time. They like know what their population wants.
4: I think if you think short term that criticism doesn't seem as necessary, but what it does do is set like super dangerous precedent for the future, right? So if you like build up a habit of not criticizing the small things that get bigger, you get to a point where you're highly likely to just like consider not criticizing things that get bigger and bigger and so more than thinking about the short-term like effect of criticizing a power outage i think it's making sure that you set a safe and like functioning precedent to ensure that your democratic government can continue to be as accountable and reliable and trustworthy and like all that kind of stuff to your citizens for like future saving, future proofing essentially mm.
1: yeah yeah and make sure that there are platforms where people can kind of safely criticise the government if they need to. I guess that was yeah. what I was getting at, is because the power outage didn't really have that much um, sway over the functioning of the government in the later year. But it did show that they had had some influence over what people reported on.
4: Yeah, that's where you need to like make sure that you open those like democratic channels for discussion and discourse criticism
1: if you like this episode give the podcast a follow on wherever you're listening so you'll be the first to know when we
0: upload we'll be releasing an episode every sunday new zealand time follow us on instagram and facebook we're generation discourse everywhere